Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are four girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real-life zoo employees. As always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Please keep in mind we try to keep the podcast around PG-13, so if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. I'm Emily. I'm Katie. And I'm Abby. What up, peeps? Oh, that's me. With that, let's talk about stuff. <laughs> we almost did it. That is you, Abby. Oh God. Hello, friends. The world's falling apart, and so are we. It's okay. Ellie just hopped up on the couch to also participate in the recording of this episode. So oh, she says, "I'm Ellie." Ellie. If you hear some panting, yes, it is her. Just sitting on the couch next to me. Ellie, what would you like to say about the Supreme Court? She's licking oh. my foot. So that's her opinion on the matter. Yeah. Uh... She has words. You just can't hear them, but she's you absolutely right. In her sleep, she was like snorting. It was the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. We need these little positive moments. <laughs> yeah. When the world is falling apart, just get a golden retriever. I did have and a camper this week. Um, we were out in the zoo and he was like, hold on. If we're going to walk fast, I got to put my Crocs in sports mode. <laughs> I always tell my kids that they have to put their Crocs in sport mode if they're wearing Crocs. And they all know what that means. They've never once needed clarification. It just made me laugh because I was like, you know, bud, this was the kid that like started off kind of iffy and by the end of the Uh, week was like giving me a giant hug because he had so much fun. We love that. I loved it very much, but I was also just like, he just made, he cracked me up all the whole time. Very good. All (laughs) right. Now that we've got our life updates out of the way. Uh, Katie, take it away. Okay. So conservation updates this week, bees or fish, and I will not elaborate. I think you should probably elaborate. I do see a giant elaboration underneath. All right. So (laughs) this has been like a buzz, I guess, word headline. Get it? Buzz? Because it's bees. Oh, my God. I I don't need to be here much longer, (laughs) right? I didn't even mean to do that. Uh, it's, you know, like a, just one of those headlines. It's like, oh, yeah, this will make people read this article. But Cal- the state of California, uh, they there were three groups that petitioned the state of California to protect four species of bees that had seen significant population declines. Um, and this was back in 2018. Uh, initially, this was opposed. I mean, it still is by... Uh, ag- some agricultural groups due to how it could interfere with crop production, but they finally made a ruling on these petitions uh, in May of this year. Uh, they decided, based on the language in the Endangered Species Act, they decided in favor of protecting the bees, but under the ruling that bees are fish. Because- I mean, everything's a fish. Exactly. In the Endangered Species Act, uh, the, the act only lists that an endangered species can be, quote, a bird, mammal, fish, amphibian, reptile, or plant. What? The- I Hold on. My first question is, why? Like, what? Why haven't we changed that? Um, add an amendment to it. Insects? Hello? I don't know. Other things that are not classified in those groups? Because it just- most of the people were like... 
I mean, obviously the bugs too, but then California is like, man, we're going to be picky. Well, no, but it's like literally just not they're written trying in to it, protect so it's them ridiculous. Like, but wait, we can't. Luckily, Section 45 of the California Fish and Game Code defines fish as a, quote, a wild fish, mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, amphibian, or part, spawn, or ovum of any of these animals. So it doesn't take much to, you know, realize that this is a very broad definition and it applies to a lot of animals that aren't really fish. I mean, it literally just says invertebrate. Guess what? Most These are invertebrates. Fish. So great. We are good. <laughs> so that's how bees uh, are protected now, which is great. We just had to find a little loophole in order to do so, which is a little silly, but it made for a lot of headlines. Uh, my second piece of conservation news is uh, <laughs> another fun little ruling that came out of the Supreme Court last Thursday. Uh, I don't know if you guys have guessed. We're very mad at the Supreme Court right now, as are most people. We're lucky Kenzie's not here. (laughs) Y'all are lucky Kenzie are not here. Because she would be. She's coming for their kneecaps. Your headphones would break. I'm coming. Yeah. Yep. Many broken kneecaps to be had. Many broken knees. So, anyways, uh, last Thursday. They restricted the Environmental Protection Agency's power or EPA's power to regulate carbon emissions um, that are a major cause of climate change. It said that an agency, that anytime an agency does something big and new, in this case addressing climate change, the regulation is presumptively invalid unless Congress has specifically authorized regulating in this sphere. So basically, if it's something new that they're introducing introducing that has not already been um, in they need an a older stat, yeah, they need a statute, then they need a new precedent for it. They need a whole whole new thing for it. So under under what the court has recently called the quote unquote major questions doctrine, neither the EPA nor any other agency may adopt rules that are transformational to the economy unless Congress has specifically authorized such a transformative rule to address a specific problem like climate change. So it's just disheartening because climate change is happening, whether we want it to or not. And time is not our friend in this case. You know, the longer we kind of prolong these sorts of initiatives that will, you know, either try to alleviate some of the causes, uh, it's just, it's it's not getting any better. It's just going to get worse. So uh, we really need to vote, I guess, even though we can't vote for Supreme Court people. It's almost <laughs> like the system is rigged. What? What? No. Anyways, <laughs> but we can still vote for other peoples in other places. Do what little you can, and even if the EPA has restrictions, it doesn't mean that you have certain restrictions either. So just listening to the that, podcast, man. make making more eco friendly choices. It, One of the justices who toy. voted against the ruling, um, I like their quote. She says. This was Justice Elena Kagan. Um, oh, an angel. She said, the court, uh, she says, the court majority, quote, 
does not have a clue about how to address climate change, yet it appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening, end quote. That's like everything. Like, yeah, no one's listening to experts. Yeah, you right, girl. Uh, dang it. Wish there were nine of you up there <laughs> instead of three, but it's fine. Everything's fine. Anyways, that's the end of my conservation news. Let's get some zoo news, man. I got some pretty good zoo news this week. I'm ready. Um, I have porcupine news. Uh, I'm too lazy to get my app out. There <laughs> was a baby PTP born at the Stone Zoo in Massachusetts. It's a male. Very oh, cute. baby boy. Baby boy. So that's that's the rest of that news. I just was it was happy and we needed it. Um, so a guest was injured by a giraffe at Lincoln Children's Zoo. Um, supposedly at the giraffe feeding platform. There aren't oh. many details about what happened, but the giraffe are remaining off exhibit until tomorrow as of recording um, until they can assess what happened and make improvements. I'm assuming some guests tried to pet the giraffe and giraffes notoriously hate being petted. So <laughs> He said, don't do that. I probably, like that's what I'm assuming. So they're probably going to either increase staff uh, decrease the access guests have to the giraffes, something. But a friendly reminder not to pet the animals that you're feeding unless they tell you it's okay. Definitely don't pet their heads and follow zoo directions. Uh, yeah, there's literally like no details. Interesting. Correct. But the zoo did release a statement ahead of the media, which I thought was good. So they're trying. Good on, yeah. Um, a shoe bill named Abu at the Exmoor Zoo in the UK is waiting for a boyfriend so they can have babies. Babies. I cute. thought you'd really like that. That's I why just, I sent it to you. And then the zookeepers are all like, this is the coolest bird we've ever had ever. And I'm like, yes! Correct. You're They're correct. pretty cool. They're dinosaurs. Um, this is not really about animals, but I thought it was awesome. The Houston Zoo is the first animal park in the country that has gotten rid of single-use plastic in their gift shop. Nice. I'm kind of we confused why it took this long, but I'm excited. Well, I don't a lot know. of it seems kind of tough. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's awesome that they did that. So, way to go, Houston Zoo. We love you. Um, Columbus Zoo has regained has gained an accreditation by the ZAA after losing their AZA accreditation last year. So they've got some accreditation back, which is good. Um, hopefully, that means that they can help participate in some more of the things that they can't right now. Um, and hopefully their AZA accreditation will be renewed. I think September is when they can reapply this year. This year or next year. Yeah, mm. I mean, they're moving in the right direction. Yeah, so that's good. Um, yeah, very hopeful for them because they have good stuff going on. Um, this one I found funny. Do you remember last year we talked about the mysterious Amarillo picture? Yes. Of, like the cryptid that yes. nobody yeah. could... Yeah. Look, I'm going to paste this link in our Google Doc. Wait, is it, the, is it the hippo? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. that you clapped back at Amarillo and said, oh my gosh, a mysterious figure. And it's literally just a hippo Photoshop. Behind anyway, it. They're like, can oh, anyone I tell us that. what this is? <laughs> anyone know what this is? It's so literally funny. just a hippo at the And then night the Fort Worth Zoo um, did one with a baby elephant. So everybody's just taking it and running. And I 
hilarious. I love it. We love a good meme. Um, I did not add this giraffe. I did. Giraffe? Okay. What this is so cool. So this was also actually at the Lincoln Children's Zoo. Um, trying Omaha to, Zoo. This, did I? The, the oh, 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 yes, sorry. Zoo. So giraffe that lives at the Omaha Zoo saves the life of a baby giraffe at the Lincoln Children's Zoo. So this was June 29th. Uh, there was a baby giraffe born at Lincoln Children's Zoo earlier this year, but she was unable to be fed by her mom. Um, one of the consequences of that is she didn't get um, colostrum, which is super important to developing an immune system. So... Unfortunately, because of this, over the next day, uh, it says in the article, over the next day or two, she developed a severe infection and became ill. Uh, They were trying to figure out how they could save this baby giraffe's life, what they could do. And they reached out to um, other zoos for help, like if anyone had any experience with this sort of uh, situation. And just up the road at the Omaha Zoo, 14-year-old Jawari, a male giraffe, was working on a voluntary blood draw with his trainers and he's actually gotten really reliable with the blood draw. So he allowed them to um, get, get a prolonged blood draw. So an extended amount of time and was able to give life-saving plasma because of this. Uh, And this is something that had taken years to get to with this draft of training and trust with his keepers. Uh, So now thanks to the help of, Jawari, the baby giraffe named Kay, is now healthy and growing. Jawari, like, hero. oh my god, <laughs> like not me getting this, <laughs> but that's beautiful, and that's, that's what awesome. training can do. And right now, uh, now that he can get plasma, they're working to establish a national plasma bank for um, multiple species, not just for giraffes. Wow. You know. This this topic actually came up this week. Um, they went to the vet hospital, um, and one of them asked if we do an- like organ donation for animals. Huh. And the vet that was there said there's just not an established network for that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so this just made me think of that. That's very interesting because yeah. that would have to be like – like, you know, with humans, it's, like, immediate. Like, you have right, to Right, get... right. Well, that's basically what she so, said. That would be tough. Yeah, I could see why that would be a tough thing. But in the future, who knows? it might be possible. If, like, plasma is kind of, like, the first step, I guess. Because I know they've done blood, blood transfusions. Yeah, blood banks. Know, animals, but still cool. Mm-hmm. That's a good question for your camper. Good for them. Oh, my gosh. My kids are full of great questions. Love them. Meanwhile, I had a woman come up to me today and ask. I was giving our keeper talk about the gorillas. Gorillas are all hanging out, sitting in the shade in various shady spots. And she comes over, just walks up. I'm literally in the middle of my talk, and she just goes, Do they not like the sun? <laughs> and I literally turned to her. I put my microphone down, and I just go, Do you like to stand directly in the sun? <laughs> I'm not that even kidding my, you. My, my did first... not skip a beat. I was actually pretty jazzed about it. Because <laughs> then I... she looks at me, and she goes, no <laughs> like, and well. I was like neither do they they like to stand in the shady spots just like you and I are doing right now and then I turn back around and I start talking again oh, people are so freaking dumb I'm 
I'm so like, proud of okay. you. Okay. <laughs> a, like, I hate standing in the sun for any period of time. And I don't have black fur covering my entire body. But I like standing in the sun. Like, it's just, it's just so, like, I don't know. Why aren't they standing directly in front of me in the hot sunlight? And instead, they're underneath that tree that's a little further away. Like, ma'am. We need to do this episode about our best guest stories at the zoo. One of these. Cool. <laughs> you mean the man that truly thought he was on our gorilla tour going to go in with the gorillas and hug them, <laughs> each one personally, individually, and started throwing a fit when he realized that that's not what our gorilla tour, had, you know, entailed? I, I'm like, sorry. No words. My favorite thing is our one of our keepers. She'll go, she'll go if someone asks, like. Don't you just want to hug them? Why can't you hug the gorilla? And the key and the other keeper will go, Oh, you can hug them once. <laughs> <laughs> and it never fails to make me laugh so hard. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Beluga news. Beluga news. Yes. Beluga news the best news. Um okay. This doesn't so- seem like happy news. Well, okay, so pro con. Um pro con. <laughs> I've Most avoided, of the things. I've avoided talking about this because it was still kind of up in the air for a long time. Um, and it finally is coming to a point. Um, but Marine Land in Canada is a facility that has many, many, many beluga whales. And it is known throughout the zoological community that the conditions that these animals are kept in are not great. Um, and so Mar- uh, Mystic Aquarium here in the United States said, hey, let us take some of these animals off your hands. Let's get them into our facility. Like, we can kind of, you know, take away some of the burden here. So they took in um, three beluga whales last year, um, and two of them have since passed. Um, And everybody was freaking out at Mystic, saying, oh, my God, you killed these beluga whales. Like, you should have never got normal things that people say. Um, And they just finally reports back from these two uh, beluga whale necropsies and it basically proved that Mystic did everything they could Um, these animals came to them sick and in a condition that was not recoverable Um, which is sad for those animals that they were being kept in that condition but it also kind of clears Mystic from any wrongdoing Um, and we know Mystic is AZA accredited they have some amazing beluga whales who by the way were being kept separate from these ones that came in from marine land because they knew the ones from marine land were sick so um but now we finally have you know on paper like hey they came in sick it was not on any wrongdoing on mystics part that these animals didn't make it right um so yeah not so great but you know mystics doing all they can and we have to commend them for that they still have one um who came in with those three um but they said that its condition is still guarded so good job mystic aquarium they're doing their best Greenland, canada why are you still open? Correct. Um, all right. Speaking of. I say, this is a good. We, all of our news kind of ties into this. A little bit. A little bit. Let's Especially do it. with the, the SCOTUS ruling and what we just said. Our topic this week is ecotourism. Woo. Let me just see who suggested that topic because I forgot to look it up. Thank you to Christine for suggesting this. Um, Christine. Uh, says hi. I've been listening to your podcast since fall of 2020. Just listen to the latest episode. Thank you for mentioning wow, my topic suggestion. True, almost OG. At, like kind of, yeah. One of probably one of the first OGs that doesn't directly know us. 
<laughs> which we appreciate. Um, and she says, I would really love to hear your advice on animal encounters uh, within the topic of ecotourism. On my travels, I try to do my research on animal encounters to make sure I'm not funding an organization that doesn't have the animal's best interest. But even then, it gets tricky. She gives some examples as well. Um, so it's, we're just going to jump right in. We're just going <laughs> to jump right in. It's, it's a great topic. Um, so I was doing some research on like what ecotourism is by definition. And I found something called the International Ecotourism Society, also known as TIES. So I was like, that seems like a pretty refutable source. Um, and I looked like more into their website and they are a refutable source. So according to them, ecotourism is now defined as responsible travel to natural areas that conserves the environment, sustains the well-being of the local people, and involves interpretation and education. Wow, it sounds like Zeus. <laughs> a little bit. We do love that. Yeah. So and then they added education is meant to be inclusive of both staff and guests. So that means that everybody is learning all the time, which is also awesome. Um, just like when we talked about Leave No Trace and the principles of Leave No Trace, there are also principles of ecotourism. Um, and these are kind of the things that kind of like we talked about evaluating zoos to see if they're good to support or not. These are things you can use to evaluate if the organization that you're trying to tour through is good or not. So the first principle is minimize the physical, social, behavioral, and psychological impacts. The second is build environmental and cultural awareness and respect. The third is provide a positive experience for both the visitors and the hosts. The fourth is provide direct financial benefits for conservation. Fifth, generate financial benefits for both local people and private industry. Sixth is deliver memorable interpretive experiences to visitors that help raise sensitivity to host countries' political, environmental, and social climates, which I thought was awesome to include. Um, seventh, design, construct, and operate low-impact facilities. And finally, recognize the rights and spiritual beliefs of the indigenous people in your community and work in partnership with them to create empowerment. So ecotourism is not just about when you're on the tour. It's about coming back home and saying, what can I do now that is going to help improve where I live? And I thought that was pretty amazing. We do like that. We love it. Yeah. So to get directly to uh, Christine's first question, Katie, you're going to talk about animal encounters. Yeah. And I'm looking at some of her, like, like so she asked a few specific examples. Um, so I'm actually going to probably touch on two of them because they pertain to what I'm going to talk about. And then I might leave the second one about whale sharks to uh, marine ecotourism that Emily's going to talk about. Yes, but are. just to kind of start off, when you are looking at animal encounters, um, whether it is abroad or here in the States that are not part of zoo encounters so examples you're going to um a wildlife rescue a wildlife preserve or a wildlife sanctuary are really going to be the other names you'll see floating out there with these sorts of um encounters offered how do you know that it is it is a good one it is a good facility the animals are in good situations and the whatever money you do spend is going to a good cause uh, one of the first things off the bat that you can look for is accreditation. So it's not going to be AZA accreditation, which we talk about 5 billion times on this podcast. <laughs> um, it's actually uh, going to be the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, or GFAS, is an accreditation that you can look for. Uh, this is 
a pretty good accreditation process. I looked a little bit into it. And we also looked into this during our zoo episode as well. Um, one of my absolute favorite sanctuaries in the entire world is GFAS accreditated. So like if they you are say I, it's grace. It's, know grace. it's grace. It is grace. You knew it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's grace. Grace is GF, uh, which is a gorilla rehabilitation and conservation education center um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is GFAS accredited. I was also looking up some other sanctuaries and rescues or rehabilitation centers that I know um, globally. And most of them are also GFA, GFAS. That is tough to say. Accredited. So I do think this is a good indication um, of animal care and welfare as well as their conservation initiatives. But um, even if, because there were some that I looked at that I know are reputable facilities but are not GFAS accredited one specifically being um, just personally that I know is the Pan American Conservation Association um, their website and I have actually met the owners that run the Pan American Conservation Association they work really closely with my zoo um, they we my zoo that I work for funds a lot of their conservation a lot of their programs. They are a rehabilitation center based in Panama that focuses mainly on sloths. Oh, the, yeah. the first picture is very good. Yes, so their website is a little. It it could probably use some updating, but in looking at their website, something that um, I was looking at that could indicate that this is a good facility is I went to their partners page. And looking at their partner page, you can see that they partner with um, Whoa, say all the zoos that are not my zoo. Like, for <laughs> so example, many things. Uh, zoo Miami uh, and Indianapolis Zoo are both partners of this uh, rehab center. Those are both AZA accredited facilities. Palm uh, those Beaches as well. Yeah, before they do a partnership. Yeah, Palm Beach Zoo and Conservation Society. Before they do a partnership with this sort of organization, they are going to do their due diligence and research and making sure that this is a good um, facility to to donate to, to support, um, and to showcase. So that is a really great indication is not only looking at their accreditation, but also looking at their partners. So are they partnered with other conservation organizations? Are they partnered with AZA accredited zoos? think that is a big indication of you know if they are good or not so good uh the other thing that I would look for is are the animals you're meeting so let's say you're going to or looking at a place that's advertising an animal encounter if they are a rehabilitation facility they should not be having the animals that they are rehabilitating interacting with guests with people um, when an animal is in rehabilitation, the goal is to eventually re-release them into the wild, which means human contact and just becoming familiar with humans. It's something you really want to limit so that that animal has the best chance of life when it goes back to the wild. Um, so if there's no, I guess, fine line between these are our animals that are currently in rehabilitation, these are our animals that are permanent residents because they have uh, they are not eligible for re-release due to, uh, you know, whatever it may be. If that animal has an injury that it would not survive with in the wild, like they might be an amputee, for example. Um, so they need to live permanently at the, and therefore it's now our ambassador animal. Then that is, you know, 
acceptable, but if it's an animal that they are like, oh no, yeah, this animal is going to be re-released, um, it's in rehab, that's questionable, at least to me. I mean, does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, yes. because it's like, you don't want, you want, with animals that are being rehabilitated and to be released, you want to minimize the human impact as much as possible. So yeah, being able well, to I like, mean, it's like what we tell people at, you know, with the manatees when they say, oh, can I feed them? Well, first of all, it's illegal. Second of all, first of all, second of all they're law. here because they're ill. They're being rehabilitated. They're going back into the wild. Like this is like their hospital room. It helps to frame it that way for people who don't like understand. It is a hospital room. Would you go into the hospital room and try to feed your sick, sick grandma a piece of pizza? Maybe, but probably not, right? <laughs> Maybe. Well, I always the doctor says she should eat. I always think it's a good idea, a good like visual too, is when we are helping with rehabilitated manatees, when we're feeding them, we literally step back from the rehabilitation area and then toss the lettuce in so that they can't see where the lettuce is coming from. To them, it's just like, wow, magical lettuce falling (laughs) into the sky because then they don't see that there's the human impact behind it. So that's like reducing the human impact on their rehabilitation, which will make them more successful when they go back into the wild. Right. Yes. And one of my favorite examples of this is actually SeaWorld because they have a rescue tour. So as a guest, you can sign up for a rescue tour, which is a tour of their rescue facility. But there is no part of that tour where you are actually near really near any animals except for the manatee viewing area, but that is also open to every other guest. You know, they're they're manatees, it's a little different. But when you take them behind the scenes, you go into the rescue area, they're showing you a lot of the equipment they use for rescues. They're showing you a lot of the, they show you like the hospital area for when we bring in rescues or for like the resident animals. But when we pass, we would pass by like, say the bird rehab area, you could see it. We would not go near it. Like guess we're nowhere near those animals, like seeing it from a distance, explaining what it is. Um, like same with the dolphin area or the sea turtles there was a lot more space because those animals like you said are it's basically like they're in a hospital right now they are getting better they are recovering they are on a path to rehabilitation and re-release so we need to give them their space for that reason so when you're going to a like say a sanctuary rehab center um a lot of times it could just be a tour of their facility and i actually would take that as a really good indication that they are doing the right things um, because they are willing to show you their stories. They're willing to show you their facilities and what they do, but they are giving their rehabilitated wildlife, the respect and space that they need to heal and recover. The listener that posed this episode also had a really, that she went to the Australia zoo and did two animal encounters with koalas and dingoes. Um, There is debate about how koala cuddles and how they can get stressed out. But she said she trusts that she trusts that the Irwins um, and that all the money would go to conservation and that these animals are taken well care of. Um, She is correct. (laughs) in that assumption. We also trust the Irwins. um, Say if Robert Irwin asked me to jump off a cliff, I would say how far you want me to jump out. Yeah, there's also a difference between uh, koalas that have been trained to be held versus koalas that are just picked up and carried around yeah Um, australia zoo has this has what's equivalent to an aza accreditation but from the australian version of the aza there are still some questions within the zoo community about like 
you know, full contact with crocodiles and things like that that aren't really standard other places. But that's um, more of a facility to facility. Correct. You know, so debate. as far as like conservation and animal care, animal care and education goes, there's no denying the Irwins have had one of, if not the most positive impact on those fields. So. Yeah. So the question there was, are animal encounters at trusted zoos okay? I would say absolutely. Um, because there is going to be some level of like just making sure that that encounter is good for the animal and good for the people involved um, by a lot of different eyes, not only the zoo itself, but by those accreditation associations as well. Um, versus in a lot of cases, um, especially when you go abroad, you may see animal encounters offered in more of like a roads, like here in the United States, it would be more like a roadside zoo, what you would see going on where they're just like, come take a photo with this bear. Oh my this, gosh. Can I, ha I have an anecdote. This bear is, you know, not voluntarily, well, A, <laughs> shouldn't be taking a photo with a bear for safety reasons uh, just go to yellow <laughs> the yellowstone national park social media apparently last week there are two people that were gorged by bison three, three people gored three um, people so far this year at yellowstone park yeah. by bison and, and uh, 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 i mean like, that's ecotourism people go to yellowstone to see the sights see the animals but you get too close and that's not that's not on Yellowstone. No. Mm. Yellowstone idiot. goes to every single link to say, please stay away from all the wildlife or Short else you could get hiring thousands bored. of people to just guard the bison, which they cannot do because right. everywhere is short staffed right now. And there's other idiots doing other idiotic things, other places where they could get in a lot more danger a lot quicker. So. Right. Well, <sighs> I mean, but like going back to a road, like roadside zoo, no matter if it's in the U S or elsewhere, um, it, the, you know, which I say roadside zoo, these places can call themselves sanctuaries. They can call themselves wildlife rescues, any or all of the above. But if they have those sorts of like, come pose with our monkey for a photo for like $10, take a picture with, yeah, any sort of baby animal is very questionable. So that was the other, um, example that our listener posed was they were thinking of visiting a wildlife rescue in Costa Rica, but heard that many of the rescues will separate baby sloths from their moms or breed sloths to have a constant supply of baby sloths for people to cuddle and take photos with. Um, this is true. This is actually a huge problem when it comes to sloth conservation. Um, and she would like to, she did not get to visit a wildlife rescue during that trip, but would love to find a reputable one to visit in a future, on a future trip. Truthfully, if you are going, um, or if you are trying to find a sloth encounter where you are looking to hold a sloth, it is a no in general from me. Um, that is not an easily trained behavior for a sloth. It is something that does take a long time. It is doable and it um, is done at some AZA accredited zoos in the country, but um, only, I, I only know of like a very small handful of zoos that allow guests to hold the sloth. It I is not really a common practice. Yeah. It is not done at the facility that I work at with our sloths. Well, we are able to handle them that way because we work with them. We train with them on that behavior 
I would say if you are looking to get a sloth encounter and they are offering sloth holding or cuddling, um, that is probably an indication that that sloth is being exploited and not getting the best of care. Any um, any place that uses the words that uses the word cuddling. Uh, that's true. That's a red flag. It, it, right there. That's a red flag for me because it's like that's something that humans do. It's not something that animals do. Yes. So one organization that I like to point to when it comes to sloth ecotourism is the Sloth Conservation Foundation. They are based in Costa Rica that they have done work with in uh, Panama, Brazil, and Colombia as well. They are not a rescue or sanctuary. They are not open to the public. Uh, They focus mainly on sloth conservation and research of wild sloths. So they are focused on issues like deforestation. They are extremely focused on sloth trafficking and sustainable sloth tourism is one of their big product uh, projects that they do in a lot of high tourist areas. Sloths are commonly exhibited by the side of the road uh, with unsuspecting tourists being charged to take a photo with the animal. So you will literally see someone holding a sloth on the side of the road with a sign that says, you know, however much money hold this sloth, get a photo. Uh, Often these sloths in particular have been pulled from the trees. Often that means their mother unfortunately has been killed uh, and the baby is used as a photo prop. Uh, And in a lot of cases they are used in this way unless someone pays to rescue it to get it out of that situation. But it's still sort of perpetrating that kind of vicious cycle um, of money making and the exploitation of these animals. The big issue that they point to here is actually, they title it the wildlife selfie problem, which is just that drive for people to get that, so you know, that Instagram photo that's going to get a thousand or more likes because it has a really cute animal in it. But unfortunately, uh, the lengths that are gone to get these photos in these sorts of situations usually means that animal has been exploited. And because of that, photo that's now circulated or gone viral everyone wants to have the same experience so what the sloth conservation foundation does is they actually put up these signs in high tourist areas where there are you know sloths in the area that basically list (laughs) it's pretty much the marine mammal protection act rules except for sloths so they say things like please keep 10 feet minimum distance from sloths at all time do not touch hug hold or grab them do not disturb them with loud noises uh you know if you see one crossing the road let it cross safely do not interact with it but do help stop traffic if necessary and toward the bottom it says don't ever pay to hold or have a photograph with a sloth or any other wildlife now unfortunately this is the case in those uh countries that i mentioned earlier costa rica panama brazil colombia that more often than not it is not a good situation for that sloth and that sloth um, was often taken from the wild or bred specifically for these sort of money-making um tourist opportunities they mention also at the bottom if you see a sloth or any other animal being exploited please contact us so that goes on to say you know our sloth encounters in general are sloth encounters experiences okay 
And right on their website, they say, yes, plenty of accredited zoos and aquariums have very ethical sloth encounter experiences available. Here are some top five things to look out for if you're looking for that sort of sloth encounter at a zoo. And they list things like, is the interaction on the sloth's terms or is it voluntary? Does the organization donate to support sloth conservation efforts in the wild? How many encounter experiences does the sloth participate in each day? Um, all of those sorts of questions that we've mentioned um, earlier on the podcast, but it is a very slippery slope when you go to, you know, areas where there are not accredited zoos and aquariums available. And it is just these, you know, places that can claim these animals were rescued and, you know, you can take a photo with one, whatever. Uh, but they do not have this sort of vetting or accreditation that most places go through. I can't even say most places go through in the United States because, you know, there's two uh, about 200 accredited AZA zoos. There's over 2,000 facilities that are allowed to house animals in the U.S. So it, it is that slippery slope that's a very fine line. <laughs> On their website, they say, rescue a sloth, educate guests, give money to conservation. Great. Uh, there is absolutely, absolutely no need to go any further than that. So they are talking about things like doing yoga with a sloth or petting and taking a selfie with one, but then kind of covering it under the guise of education. So like, for example, at my facility, I did the sloth tours twice a day, every day. Um, it was up to our sloths if they wanted to participate, but the entire time of that tour, I did not stop talking about sloth natural behavior, what sloths look like uh, in the wild and how important their conservation is and what can that guest do to help them once they leave the tour today. That was our biggest point to that tour. Whereas you can't just say, oh yeah, take a picture with this sloth that needs your help. And that's the end of that conversation. So I guess in the end, I understand sloths are the cutest animal ever. I love them dearly. I highly recommend doing an encounter with one at an accredited zoo here in the United States. I don't think I could in good conscience recommend doing one in Costa Rica, Panama, those countries that um, I listed earlier. Um, and saying with the Sloth Conservation Foundation, it's just such a more common practice to exploit sloths in those areas than it is here in the United States. And it's a lot more easily done. And it's harder to... I guess, weed out the good from the bad in those scenarios. So I would recommend definitely looking for experiences or ecotourism opportunities where you can see sloths in their natural habitat. So doing things like a rainforest tour um, with a reputable organization, I think is your best bet at learning more about sloths and seeing them in that natural setting in those places in particular. Now that isn't to say that there aren't reputable sloth rescues and sanctuaries in those South American countries. However, if you are going to visit one, I would really do your due diligence in making sure that it is reputable, that they are not exploiting sloths and that they are practicing what they preach and that they 
uh, truly, you know, are doing the right things by these animals and by conservation. And those same questions that I mentioned earlier, uh, that the sustainable, uh, that the Sloth Conservation Foundation mentioned in regards to how do you know if it is a uh, ethical sloth encounter at an at a you know an accredited zoo um, would also follow for those sorts of rescue or sanctuary encounters as well. Like I mentioned earlier, checking out who they partner with, checking out their website beforehand, asking those questions, um, and that goes for any animal. I know I'm really focused on sloths here, but I'm. Um, as they mentioned earlier, they said to contact them in regards if you see a sloth being exploited or any wildlife, because it's not just sloths. Um, it is cotton top tamarins in Colombia. It's uh, tiger cubs in, you know, India. It's or quokkas in Australia or whatever animal have you in its native region. It's in all these different you know, respective countries where these animals are found, where they're found is where they're going to be trafficked first, which is why when you're doing an or looking for an animal encounter in the area where that animal is native to, it can be a little tougher because that sort of trafficking is going to be more common where it is easier to make money doing that sort of practice. That being said, I mentioned that I you know, would recommend in those areas uh, doing ecotourism more along the lines of rather an animal encounter, more so observing that animal in the, their natural habitat because, you know, how cool is that? You're actually able to do that in that country or wherever you're going. But as we're going to talk about in a little bit, or as Abby already kind of mentioned with the Yellowstone situation, that comes with its qualms too uh, because you could possibly be disturbing wild animals and natural habitats in wild places. So we'll probably move on to that topic next. You know, yeah, but I'll, first I'll let's rest. learn about why I don't know why, but people want to do dolphin encounters. <sighs> For the love of God. What do you mean you don't know why? <laughs> okay, so you guys know that trend on Instagram right now where people like post a question link and then people submit anonymous questions. Mm-hmm. Somebody, was this you, Abby? Somebody <laughs> Yeah, Abby's laughing because it was her. Somebody just messaged me yesterday and was like, why do you hate dolphins? Yeah, that was me. (laughs) Because. All right. So I, as a concept. I don't even hate dolphins that much. That's the problem. I hate, well, I'll, (laughs) let me carefully word this. Sometimes the people in general do love dolphins are not good eggs okay (laughs) and they have sometimes they do have good intentions and other times they do not if dolphins are your mom animal you need to oh my god i okay we're gonna we're gonna get into this we're just really gonna do it um okay so beautiful tropical destination and you're like wow this is a great trip and you're like wow there's a beautiful dolphin swimming out in the ocean amazing i want to touch one okay first of all no you don't no you don't (laughs) second of all you're like oh i'm here in insert i don't know some non-usa country here and you're like i saw a place what tahiti sure And you see a place by the side of the road that's like, 
come swim with the dolphins. And you're thinking in your head, I'm going to go jump in the ocean. And this beautiful creature is going to come swimming around me. And we're going to play. We're going to have a great time. They're going to bond with me. And you're just going to have a memory that lasts forever. And no. The answer is no. The answer is no. Okay? And let me tell you why. So let me start with here in the United States. And then we'll kind of branch out. Um, Here in the United States, thank God, we have the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which I feel like I bring up every episode. um, As you should. As I should. Does Beluga News have something to do with that? Maybe. Yeah. Um, I bring up the MMPA all the time. MMPA, Marine Mammal Protection Act. um, Because it is a law in the United States. And a lot of people truly just don't know that it exists. Um, And if you go to um, NOAA's website, you can look up the MMPA they break it down animal by animal. What does this mean? How close can you get to them? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to give you guys like the Cliff's Notes version of the Marine Member Protection Act um, just so you all have that information. And then we'll kind of talk some specific scenarios. Um, but first and foremost, never, ever, 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 ever attempt to feed any marine mammals or any marine animal for that matter. Um, it is harmful to that animal because that animal is going to think that you're going to bring them food every day and then it's going to approach every person that it sees and then it's either going to get hit by a boat or somebody is going to do something not very nice to that animal because unfortunately not every person is a nice person. You yeah. may have every good intent on the earth, but not every person does. Okay. Um, so it is illegal to feed any marine animal, marine mammal, um, and you shouldn't feed any marine animal. Um, or and any animal do, in the wild. Truly. For, for um, do not swim with, ride, pet, touch, or attempt to interact with marine mammals or sea turtles. MMPA has a weird, like, sea turtle bylaw, which is incredible, by the way. <laughs> sea turtles are marine mammals. <laughs> yeah, not quite. They do breathe air. They're fish. I mean, I suppose you could make the argument that the algae that grows on them oh is kind of like hair. But they have absolutely no parental care, so I'm going to veto that one. Um, But you, according to the MMPA, you cannot swim with, pet, ride, touch, or attempt to interact with any marine mammal or sea turtle in the wild. Now, I would like to – I would like to pause here. And how many people do you know who have gone on vacation to, let's say, Hawaii, myself included, and they come back and all they have is pictures of them and sea turtles? Mm, Okay? True. Not me. I have pictures of me and birds. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there, it all comes down to because I had to explain this to the campers the other day with manatees because they were struggling with this concept. When you approach that animal, and that animal A realizes that you are there, and then B reacts to you being there, you have changed that animal's behavior and you have possibly harmed that animal. Per the law, that is harassment, um, which is illegal. Um, for, I will say for the sea turtles in Hawaii, like it's one thing if you're snorkeling out in, you know, we'll say 20 feet of water and a sea turtle swims by and you just watch it and everybody moves on with their life. That's one thing. If you see that sea turtle and you wonderful encounter, good job. Yeah. That's what I did. It was magical. Exactly. Now option B, you're swimming in, we'll say six feet of water. You are up against a cliff. The sea turtle is eating the algae off of the rocks underneath the water. And you and seven of your closest friends are now surrounding that turtle. Mm. Okay, you have now created a problem. 
Um, <laughs> you are the problem. Right. Well, that's the thing. Like, when you change that animal's behavior, you have now caused that animal harm. Because that animal might be eating. That animal might be resting. That animal might be taking care of its young. That animal is doing things that it was going to do without you, okay? And now that you're here, it has to change its whole plan, okay? Um, yes. In general, um, for Marine Mammal Protection Act, the guidelines are generally 50-plus yards away from all large marine mammals and sea turtles if possible. So the if possible part of that is if you're swimming in 20 feet of water and a sea turtle just happens to go underneath you and move on with its life, great. Um, but if you are Magical 10 moment. feet away – if you're 10 feet away from a humpback whale, maybe you should rethink your life, okay? Um, now, let's talk about whale watching specifically um, and, like, marine ecotours on boats, okay? Um, this is where MMPA really comes into um, play because the boats, the vessel itself, has to remain over 100 yards away from large whales, 50 yards away from dolphins, porpoises, seals, sea lions, and sea turtles, um, humpback whales specifically, you have to be a hundred yards away from, um, in killer whales in Washington state, you have to be 200 yards away from and North Atlantic right whales in, um, the Eastern part of the United States, you have to be 500 yards away from, um, Oof. yeah, it's a lot this of yards. Is, so yeah. there's not a lot of, let me get out my tape measure really quick. Here. Right. And again, you see those photos online of, you know, these little and this, literally blue whale is like right next to the boat. Now, did you take that boat and drive it on top of where you knew the blue whale was about to surface? You have created a problem Were you just minding your own business and the blue whale decided to breathe there. That's different, right? So it's all about the intent here. Um, the MMPA has a lot of different kind of guidelines here, um, such as limit the time observing the animals to 30 minutes. So you're lessening your amount of disturbance. Um, do not chase them and circle them um, on watercraft or by swimming. Um, avoid approaching them when there are lots of other watercraft around. Um, the more vessels that are there, the more likely they are to be disturbed. A la um, the freaking dolphins off of the coast, west coast of Oahu, which thank God that is illegal now. Um, literally, they would take like 20, 30 snorkel boats, drop 50 tourists apiece on top of a leaping pod of spinner dolphins. Oh, my God. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Um, so this kind of is what um, our listener also asked was that she had gone swimming with whale sharks in Mexico, and um, the company that she went with had a naturalist on the boat and taught them, like, how to properly interact with them, but she didn't know how to feel when she saw tons of other boats next to them surrounding them in their natural habitat and disturbing their behaviors. Right. Uh, and then she asks, is going with a reputable tour and posting about it on social media still contributing to the problem by increasing demand and encouraging other non-reputable tour companies? Christine, you were asking all the so right like, questions. Yes. Right. And, and, and again, I it, love your critical thinking skills. Yes, You're amazing. Yes. It Thank comes you. down to Thank you. <laughs> doing your own personal research. Like, obviously, you cannot control the 10 other boats around you dropping, you know, however many hundreds of tourists in the water. But you did the right thing. You researched a company that was reputable. You found one that has a naturalist. They're going to teach you about the animals. They're going to teach you how to properly view them and, you know, swim around or whatever. Um, you're doing what you can, right? And then, um, by and like then when you're sharing and reviewing, 
giving right. money to that organization, that's all helping. Right. And when you, when you post about it, you can say, Hey, I did this specific tour and these are the reasons that I picked this tour. And yeah. you can tell all your friends, right? I mean, she makes a great point though. Like, you know, for example, if I post a picture of me working with an animal at my job, does that make someone else? And even if with the understanding that I'm a zookeeper, I'm qualified to be working with this animal. I have a training relationship with them, whatever. Is that going to make someone else say, I want to also um, hold a hyacinth of caw. There's a good example. And they're going to find a not great source in order to do that because I saw this picture on social media. I feel like that's and the risk you run, though, and that's a lot of the arguments against zoos. That's anyway, true. Like, <laughs> I, one of my professors in college, who I respect deeply, is like super anti-zoo, and that's part of the reason he's like, I don't think it contributes to conservation because of A, B, and C, and it's encouraging people to go up and touch these animals when that is not what is safe for them. And I said, I mean, there's there's always going to be that that group of people, though. There's going to be that yeah. right, that and that's why I think that's why I think you know you can do what you can do, right? Um, you can't control the world around you, but you can influence those close to you, and you can make the right decision for you. Um, you know, by you saying no, I'm not going to go jump on a sleeping pod of spinner dolphins. Have you solved the problem? No, but you might educate three people in the process, right? And don't um, put that unnecessary pressure on yourself either, because that's what leads right. to like ecophobia and um, compassion fatigue and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so going back to um, whale watching, dolphin watching, et cetera, um, when you are not in the United States, um, there are some countries that do have like other rules. For example, Tahiti, um, you have to be your boat cannot approach within, I think it is 50 yards of um, humpback whales. Um, and there's some other, like I said, every country's different. Every country's going to have different laws. Some don't have any, but use the Marine Mammal Protection Act. In my my opinion, this is my opinion, um, is a good baseline um, for viewing marine animals. Is it perfect? Yeah. No, maybe not. But it is going to be a pretty good baseline for you know, am I chasing after this animal? Am I touching it? Am I doing something that's causing it to change its behavior? Maybe I should not be doing that, right? Um, and then I did want to touch on um, just like snorkel tours and that sort of thing yeah. um, that don't necessarily involve marine megafauna. Um, for the love of God and all that is holy, please <laughs> stop standing on a coral reef. <sighs> it is an animal. It is alive. When you stand on it, it dies. Please do not do that. <laughs> if you cannot stay snorkeling on the top of the water and you feel the urge to stand up every five minutes, perhaps you should not be there. Don't. Okay? Just don't. Go somewhere else. Go somewhere. Get a noodle. Go get somewhere a noodle. Where... But get don't a leave the noodle get a life in the water. Jacket. Well, no, but just else. it. there is no shame in using a life jacket or a floating station device while you're snorkeling yeah. so you that you don't the water longer. The water. My husband had to get out early because he's not as strong of a swimmer and I just stayed in for like an extra 20 minutes because I was just having the time of my life. But then we also went with the Pacific Whale Foundation snorkeling, who I cannot recommend yes. highly yes. enough. They were incredible. Um, but they gave the rules and they talked about, like, why we anchor the boat like this, why we do this to mm -hmm. avoid harming the coral. 
Right. Um, another thing, when you're snorkeling, stop touching things. Please stop touching things. <laughs> Some of them can hurt you. Um, True that. And you, you touching them will you hurt You can them. hurt them. So I would love to hear a story about somebody things. who accidentally touched a trigger fish and what happened to them. Rest in peace. Um, <laughs> Pieces. Yes. Um, please leave everything you find. I know if you find a seashell or an urchin test or whatever, you want to take it home. And you're like, wow, a fun little memento. But that was somebody's house. Maybe not somebody you could see, but maybe it was a home of some baby giant clam larvae. And now they don't live there no more. <gasps> not baby not giant the giant clam larvae. Larvae. You see, this is where we're at. Um, when you are participating in any um, ocean activities, please wear reef safe sunscreen. There are many good ones around. We've talked about them, um, but please try to think of that. That was my biggest regret in Australia was the tour that I went on to the Great Barrier Reef, I thought was, and they did a great, like, not don't stand on the reef, don't touch the reef, don't get this close to the reef. All of that was great, but they did not even question anyone's sunscreen. Mm. And I have also been on other tours where they do, where before you get in the water, they give you their own sunscreen to put on because they know it's yes, yes. good. Yes. Um, but everyone was just spraying on whatever the heck they had on them. And I was kind of like, mm, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was too late at that point. <laughs> yes. What was that noise? <laughs> <laughs> um, just a couple more notes. Um, please be safe when you're snorkeling or doing any in-water activity. Never go alone. That's just a general life tip from me. Um, there have been a lot of stories coming out of like the Florida Keys and other places um, of people dying. Um just on these like basic snorkel tours. So please take a buddy. Please be safe. Um, and then lastly, we can talk about like whale sharks, large sharks, et cetera, other marine megafauna. Um, it all comes down to, to me, do your own research, right? Um, when I went um, shark diving in uh, on Oahu, I went with One Ocean Diving. Um, they are an amazing group. They are all about shark conservation. The money that you pay to go on this tour goes to shark conservation um, that you spend the whole ride out there learning about these sharks, their behavior, um, you know, their population, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then you get to get in the water. You kind of sit kind of with them for like, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes maybe. Um, and then you're out of there, right? And you have this amazing experience with the sharks. So it is possible to do these experiences and have these incredible moments with these animals, you know, without causing them irreparable harm, Right. But you have to do that research and you have to know what to look for. So hopefully these guidelines kind of give you some help. Um, and the, I mean, if you feel like the vibes are off, the vibes are probably off, right? Yeah. Trust um, your gut when it comes to Trust your to gut this is stuff. a big Absolutely. one. Um, and don't be afraid to teach those around you, right? Um, and don't be afraid to learn. You know, if you thought something might be okay in the past and now you've learned more and you know better. That's Okay. Like, that's okay. Like, I personally have a picture of 18-year-old Emily on a cruise or off the cruise at the port holding a baby tiger. Do I know now that that was probably wow. not the smartest decision? Emily canceled. Yes. Canceled. Canceled. Emily. canceled forever. But at the time, I had no idea, right? I love tigers. They were my favorite animal at the time. Um, what? And Yes. Believe it or not, I used to have a favorite animal that was not a marine animal. <laughs> Crazy. I feel, I feel weird about that. I, that's weird for me. Well, it changed. I don't know her. When you're stuck in Illinois, you don't have a lot of options, okay? (laughs) Um, But anyway, you know, 
I have that memory of that and it was a great memory at the time. And now it's like, okay, I would obviously never do that again. Like I know so much more like, and now I'll tell everybody who will listen, Hey, I did that. Please don't do that. Um, Don't, don't blame your past self for things that you know are wrong now. Right. You know, you didn't, I literally had no clue, like not even an iota. Like you're on vacation, you're having fun. You hold a baby tiger. Life's great. Tiger probably, but now we know. Now you know. Tell me about birds. So, (laughs) birding, um, anytime you go birding, it is ecotourism, right? Because you're going outside somewhere looking for birds. Um, And there are many rules that birders follow to be good ecotourists and be good birders. Um, So, I'm just going to share some of those tips and tricks. Uh, I feel like this is pretty applicable to like, we didn't really, I mean, we touched on it a little bit with Yellowstone, but aside from like sanctuaries, rescues, those sorts of places, you can go visit ecotourism ride national parks, no matter what country you're in nature reserves. I mean, that's ecotourism too, like you just said. Yeah. So applicable to a lot of animals. It doesn't have to be like super far away to be ecotourism. It can be, I went to the state park down my street. Right. Um, that's ecotourism. It is because you're hopefully making a neg- or a positive impact on the environment, not a negative one. Not um, possibly paying money to be there. Right. So when birding in a location that's not just like your backyard, uh, if you're going with a tour group, look into your guides, make sure that they are refutable birders. It's usually pretty easy to suss them out because the birding community is... <laughs> hardcore yeah kind of like like um we found an incredible guide in hawaii my husband found it because it was a surprise for me but she had like worked for bird sanctuaries have gone birding in like places all around the world and she was like we're gonna learn the native hawaiian names we're gonna learn about the impact that we are having and we're gonna learn about a b and c and why like even though these birds are cool, they're all invasive. I was like, wow, this is how you ecotourism bird. This is the best way to do so. Um, one really important rule is don't call at the birds. Really, we shouldn't be calling at the birds. And that includes using like your smartphone. Like I understand for ID purposes, sometimes it's better to just like play the sound so you can know what you're listening to. But Merlin Bird ID has a really great um, feature on the app that just like listens to the bird sounds. So you don't have to even play it back. And that's awesome because that'll help. And then you can record it. And then later, if you realize that I did, I did it wrong, you can do it at your house rather than out in the field. So you're not disrupting the bird's natural behavior. Nice. Um, it's really similar to MMPA, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say that applies to most animals. But yeah, ex- exactly. Um, stop sharing sites with nesting locations or um, where you're seeing certain owls and it's because people then will flock to those places and it can really disrupt the habitat not only of the birds but everything around them um, this is really important with like piping plovers because they oh, the little open plovers. nests these sweet bean angels they're such angels they're such angels but if everybody knows where like the baby piping plovers are and everyone goes there you are there's no way you're not going to disturb those birds so using things like scopes or binoculars or um just like anything to help enhance your vision is a better way to bird because that way you can stay 50 100 a thousand yards away and the bird is going to be like 
there's a human there, but it, eh. like it's not going to disturb its behavior, right? Yeah. Basically, just be a good birder. It's not that hard. Jeez Louise. <laughs> be a good person. Be a good person. Be nice. And by doing that, you will be a good birder. Yeah, pretty much. Um, now, on the podcast, we love to talk about the positive stuff, but it's also important to consider the other side of the equation. Because, we do? <laughs> well, I'm kidding. We try. We do both. It's important to consider the negative impacts of ecotourism because it's definitely a controversial topic. It is not, as we could tell from all of our ranting about many things here, we need to consider negative impacts. So when looking up more info about ecotourism, here are some of the negative impacts that you can find. First, and I think this one's kind of one of the more devastating ones, is the relocation of locals. So I think in Hawaii, this is a huge issue emily you know probably more about it than i do yeah i mean it's very it's a fine line right um these people when tourism becomes their entire economy you know these big developers come in they take large tracts of land from native peoples they turn them into these huge resorts they end up you know misplacing their wastewater they end up you know diverting natural waterways they end up causing a lot of problems. Um, but it's so deeply ingrained now in their economy that you can't just turn around and undo all of that, right? Um, so it's it's very, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. It's hard. Um, one of the main complaints a lot of local Hawaiians that I've seen, to be honest, mostly on TikTok have is um, number one, culturals being exploited from like luau's and things like that that are things in hawaiian culture that can be sacred um and number two a lot of people in hawaii have like water bands and things so that the resorts can have enough fresh water for everybody that's staying there so it's definitely a a gray area topic. do your research do yes. your research because there's definitely ways that you can be a good ecotourist in hawaii but and other yes. places like Galapagos Islands are very fragile ecosystems that are dying. We want to make sure that they're okay. Um, which is the next one. Environmental de degradation can be an impact of ecotourism because there's not a way to have a 0% impact. There's just not. Follow, leave no trace. Follow, leave no trace. Um, threat to indigenous cultures. We kind of touched on this before, but there's a lot of appropriation versus appreciation so another negative impact of ecotourism can be the travel impacts on the environment. So taking planes. So you, if you can bike around places, use a bike or walk or use public transportation or trains. Trains are cool. And that way you're Tra kind of. Trains are cool. They are. You can, buy, okay. you can buy eco offsets though. Yeah, absolutely. That's another good way to like not fix the problem, but at least minimize your impact and be a good tourist. So definitely just ways to be a better think about the tour. ways you're getting to the places you're going <laughs> yeah um integrity of the tourism organization which we've talked about a lot so do your research look at accounts from people call if you have questions or email them be like what about the a b and c and see how shady their answers are see how shady uh, their <laughs> answers are. are they avoiding the questions <laughs> yeah 
Like, if you ask it's actually not what a conservation idea. organizations do you donate to at a zoo, and they're like, we have donated to all kinds of conservation efforts, and that <laughs> Big helps with red you're flag. Like, you're like, so not any specific things then. Ten for Or just, like, asking, like, hey, you say, like, you can contribute to conservation. Can you ex- elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. And then you can figure out, you can suss out their answer. Suss um, out. And then habitat fragmentation is the last one. So separating pieces of habitat due to tourism development, even if it's just a walking path, can be uh, devastating to local ecosystems. So making sure that it you're, again, following Leave No Trace and following ecotourism are kind of the same thing. So Yeah, truly. Doing that kind of things. But there's also positive impacts, right, Katie? Yeah, there are a lot of positive impacts to ecotourism. Uh, I want to start with a quote from Lady I Love Very Much, Jane Goodall. She has said, quote, Only if we understand will we care. Only if we care we will help. Only if we help shall all be saved. Unquote. So what she's saying is ecotourism, well, she wasn't speaking to ecotourism specifically, but applied to ecotourism it gives travelers the opportunity to gain new experiences in natural areas while learning about the issues that these natural areas face um, in order to form a better understanding and hopefully therefore care more about the issues facing wildlife and in the next step, helping them. Especially when it comes to younger guests or visitors, travelers like children, uh, it's you know, really helpful in creating new generations of nature lovers. I mean, like Abby said earlier, ecotourism is going to your state park down the road, uh, not just traveling abroad to see something like the Great Barrier Reef. Well, that is also awesome. But uh, one of the pros of ecotourism is uh, its economic impact on a lot of areas. So um, to give you two specific examples uh, or two specific you have Tanzania and then you have the Galapagos Islands are two really great examples of this Uh, it's so in Tanzania they have allocated over 25% of their total area to wildlife national parks and protected areas and because of this an estimated 90% of tourists that visit Tanzania are seeking out ecotourism activities which means, in turn, ecotourism supports 400,000 jobs and accounts for 17.2% of the national GDP, uh, earning about $1 billion each year um, as its leading economic sector in Tanzania. So places like the Serengeti, Mount Kilimanjaro, and Zanzibar, and all these you know, net wildlife national parks that you can visit, uh, the country is also known for chimpanzees, and Gombe National Park is a destination that I really hope to go to someday. But to go into Gombe National Park, you have to pay to go in, and that goes directly to protecting chimpanzee habitats. So that's a really great example of the positives of ecotourism, as well as the Galapagos Islands. Uh, they A total of 97% of the land area on the Galapagos is part of the official national park. And all of its 330 islands have been divided into zones that are either completely free of human impact, protected restoration areas, or reduced impact zones, which are adjacent to tourist-friendly areas. That being said, UNESCO still lists increased tourism as one of the main threats facing the Galapagos today. So while it is 
has a really positive impact. You know, like Abby had already mentioned, there are some negatives as well. I was reading an interesting article earlier that mentioned how how is ecotourism different from regular tourism and why is that important? And what regular tourism is also referred to as conventional or mass tourism. With mass tourism, the expectations are that there are many different services involved, while in ecotourism sites, there are only a few of any services involved. And ecotourism activities are generally nature-related, like hiking, exploring trails, bird watching, or reef diving, whereas typical tourism is more comfortable and less physical. And generally, it's can ecotourism consists of smaller groups and long-term stays, whereas mass tourism often relies on large groups staying for short periods of time. But I think where a lot of the negatives that Abby mentioned come in is when ecotourism starts to shift to mass tourism. So, for example, uh, the Great Barrier Reef becoming less of an ecotourism just. Uh, destination and more of a mass tourism destination means that you're going to have more boats going out into that area, you're going to have more people possibly disturbing, um, you know, reef areas and reef wildlife. And that's when I think it can, like I said, turn more into the negative area. Whereas when done properly, it is an alternative source of income to things like poaching or wildlife trafficking. Um, Actually, in Costa Rica alone, they're actually they actually have a really large emphasis on nature-based tourism uh, because they do have a large amount of national parks and reserves. Their forest cover went from 26% in 1983 to over 52% in 2021 thanks to the government's decision to create more protected areas and promote ecotourism in the country. While I mentioned earlier some of the things to look out for when going to Costa Rica, it's numerous reserves and protected parks hold some absolutely unbelievable biodiversity and natural sites. Uh, so that places environmental conservation high on their list of priorities to preserve not only their natural species, spaces, but also to promote ecotourism and a source of income for that country. It's again, just kind of when, when does it border from ecotourism to conventional or mass tourism? when that can possibly be a problem. Another pro is that you get education and appreciation of wildlife and wild places when done correctly. And the income that is generated from these animal rescues, uh, sanctuaries, or nature reserves, national parks, are often funding other conservation projects that are more on the ground and addressing issues directly facing wildlife positive impacts of it I would say I would say it's fun when done right <laughs> it could be very fun yeah very good. good times for all uh but when it comes down to it I think the main thing to ask is is this animal being used for exploit exploitative blah, entertainment to line someone's pocket or is the money I'm spending here going to conservation of any kind for this animal or its ecosystem so do your research. If it feels sketch, as Emily said, it probably is. Trust your gut. That's your true. gut is, is probably right. And yep. thank you again to Christine for your wonderful questions that you posed and examples. And yeah, so it is a trippy, tricky topic to navigate. But the questions you're already asking, I mean, I think speak volumes that you're definitely 
doing the right things. And we really appreciate you asking. Good job. And I hope you found this episode enlightening. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that pretty much wraps it up for us. Um, if you aren't already following us on social media, do so. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Conservation Queens Podcast. Um, if you have a question or you want to tell us something, you can DM us on Instagram. Uh, that's probably the quickest way to get a hold of us. I'm no kidding. Um, <laughs> what? No, I'm just like I'm just laughing because I'm like we all have access to it. And I don't know about you, I hate random notifications on my phone, so I'll probably look at it quickly. Oh, I always read them. I think they're great. They bring me a lot of joy. Yes. Um, so please go ahead, DM us um, or email us at conservationqueenspodcast at gmail.com. Um, check out our website. Um, if you want to support us, you can become a patron. Uh, for five bucks a month, you can be a beluga babe, and it keeps us ad-free. So we love that. Um, and then the best thing you can do for us is to rate us five stars on whatever platform you're listening. Um, that's the best way to get us suggested to other new listeners who can be enlightened about how belugas are just the greatest animals on earth. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us this week. Get out there and stay sustainable. Bye. 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 Bye.